beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to begin with an, an allegory, a story to paint the picture of what we're looking at theologically and doctrinally here in Lord's Days 32 and 33. So the allegory goes like this. There's a great king and a great kingdom and a great palace. He has this servant who is privileged, who is the highest position in the kingdom, treated like a son. The servant tries a coup, a coup d'etat. He tries to take the throne and, ex and, and, and knock the king off his rightful throne. The, the servant is defeated. He's expelled from the palace and from the kingdom. And he lives now outside of the borders of the kingdom in a, a really miserable place, which is like a slum. And he spends all of his time, he and his companions and his children and grandchildren, spend all of their time mocking the king and the kingdom and the laws of the kingdom, the subjects of the kingdom, and the son of the king. They try to, to capture kingdom subjects and lure them out of the kingdom into their own foul way of outlaw life or of rebellious life. And when they can't manage that, they throw filth at them or they attack them. They show in every way that they hate the king and everything he stands for. That's kind of the picture we see in Ephesians chapter 2 where we are, says the scripture, by nature dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature children of wrath. That's the picture here in this allegory reflecting the beginning of Ephesians 2. Now the king, in his Mercy sends messengers with a gracious message of amnesty and a, a very, very hard-to-believe message of amnesty because the penalty for treason is death. But he says, look, I'm not going to exact the penalty from you. My own son has offered to pay the price of your rebellion, and I declare amnesty. You are welcome to come back and to submit to my lordship. And so the messengers come, and they come with, the, with a document. All guilt is gone. All law-breaking is forgiven. The king's son has paid the price. And this document says that not only are you welcome back as a servant, but you are welcome back as a son or as a daughter. It is a certificate of adoption. You are welcome back. Just take it, accept it, believe it's true, and act on it. Welcome home. All has been set right. And that's the allegory and the allegory. That's a picture of, of the gospel, isn't it? And we, we confess that in that first question and answer we have before us. Christ has redeemed us by his blood. All of our law breaking, it's gone. God doesn't see it anymore. It's astonishing. It's hard to process because we, we remember it. But God says, there's sins and iniquities I will remember no more. It's washed away in the blood of the cross. And we are welcome home. We're welcome back as clean and righteous and justified in the blood of Christ. Now, going back to the allegory, what kind of people does the king want to come back? 
Does he want people rebellious and, and delighting in all the filth and the, and the disgusting things that the outlaws and the rebels like to do? Does he want to fill his palace with people who love the life of the slums? You might put it this way. You can take the child out of the slum, but you can't, can't take the slum out of the child. You can say it this way. You can take the Christian out of the world, but you, you can't take the world out of the Christian. But that's not true, is it? You can. You can take the world out of the Christian. That's the whole process of true repentance or conversion where the Holy Spirit is changing us more and more. And that's what we confess there on page 548 and question answer 86. He not only redeems us, he doesn't just get rid of our guilt. He also changes us. He makes us new. He transforms us by the power of his Holy Spirit so that we look like him we think like him, and the things that he delights in, we delight in. That's a part of the gospel we often forget. We, we, we often think in very transactional terms about Jesus and about his blood. We lived a day in which we tried not to sin, but then we did sin, and then at night we say, Lord, I, I sinned. Please wash them away, and now they're gone, and then tomorrow we'll do it again. And we, we kind of have that very much in our field of vision as believers, that it's very much about doing things that aren't always measuring up, and then Jesus forgives it, and then we go on and we mess up again, but Jesus forgives it, and that's what it's all about. But that's not true. Forgiveness is one thing, and it's certainly there, but renewal is the other. Justification, a work of grace, Sanctification, a work of grace. There's a change of status in the first part. We are born children of wrath, and we are adopted to be children of God's love. That's a change in status. We are considered, and, 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 uh, we're considered by God to be holy, to be righteous, to be clean, to be innocent. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to our account. That's, that's a change in status. But together with that comes a change of character. That's the second part. He also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. That's part of the gospel, that God doesn't want you to keep being who you used to be. But God wants you to be more and more who you are in Christ. And so what we ought to see as believers is change. From loving sin and wickedness and the passions of the flesh to loving God and holiness and having desires to please him. And that's what we see at the end of that reading we, saw, we, we did in Ephesians 2. Look at verse 10 there. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in the allegory, God doesn't want a whole bunch of slum dwellers and outlaws and rebels to simply change position. They used to live outside of the kingdom. Now they're living in the palace with the same desires and the same wickedness and the same despising of the king and his laws and his kingdom. He wants them forgiven, reconciled, and changed. He wants them to be thinking, acting, and desiring differently. 
What happens when they don't? Well, look at question answer 87. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? Is that, is that what the gospel is all about? Just filling the church with bodies in the pews and names on the membership list, but sinners just keep on sinning. Is that what the gospel is about? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. It's, an, it's insane to think that Jesus would suffer the agonies of hell and take upon himself all the righteous judgment of God upon sin so that we can keep living in sin, so that we can keep loving sin. That doesn't make any sense. Those who love sin, and loving sin means not wanting to give it up, living in it, holding on to it, delighting in it, their place is outside of the kingdom. There's no place for the sin lover in God's family. That's why the church only receives those who confess that they're sinners, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and repudiate their sin. They turn their backs on the world and on sin. And that's why when someone in the church, it, when it becomes obvious and evident to the elders over time that someone is holding on to one or more sins and refuse to give that sin up, and they love that sin more than they love Jesus, then at a certain point, the church excommunicates. And when the church excommunicates, it's not just being knocked off the membership list, but the church is testifying on earth what God declares in heaven. That if you love sin and you hate Christ, you are excluded from the kingdom of heaven by your own will and your own choices. These are hard things to process because deep down, most human beings, when we think in a fleshly way, we want God to be a universalist. We want God to be so nice and so kind that he's not going to raise the bar at all. Who's perfect? Nobody's perfect. Everybody's sinful. So why can't God just open wide the gates of heaven and let everybody in? Why can't he do that? And so Paul addresses this when he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If God is a gracious God who loves forgiving sin, let's sin some more. The more we sin, the more he forgives. The more he forgives, the more glory he gets. Is that the way it works? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's the whole point, brothers and sisters, of the doctrinal teaching that we're summarizing here in this Lord's Day. If you're in Christ and your sins are forgiven, if you're in Christ and the Spirit of Jesus is working new life in you, then your relationship with sin has changed. You, know, you can't love it anymore. You must hate it. You must be dead to it, and it must be dead to you. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He gives a whole list of which reflects very much the list we have here in question answer 87. And he says, look, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. This is something, if, if there's anything in the Christian's life that has to do with identifying with sin, it has to be in the past, and it cannot be in the present. For to live in sin 
is to turn your back on Christ, is to hate Christ. And so we come to Lord's Day 33, question answer 88, and the, the outlaws are, are now in the palace. They've, they've been adopted into God's family. The, the, you're now a child of God. Your previous life is forgiven, and now it must be forgotten. Now, now you've been raised as an outlaw, as a rebel, so that's kind of hard to get rid of overnight. It, it takes work. It takes practice to unlearn the things that you know and to learn the new things that you have yet to know. You are a royal child, but you don't necessarily act like one. And so there has to be this process. There has to be this process. If you've grown up in the slums, you don't know how to live in a palace, do you? You don't know which forks, which cutlery to use at what time, during which course, during the fancy meals there in the palace. You don't know how to carry yourself, how to dress yourself properly, befitting a royal child. There's so much you don't know because all you know is the life of the slum. And so that old slum life, you has to die. It has to disappear. And the new royal you has to come into being. And that requires unlearning and learning, dying and coming to life. And that's the gospel, brothers and sisters, to us who are in Christ. You are a royal child of God. Be who you are. Act like one. You know, sometimes you, you're... Your, your mom or your dad might be a little bit frustrated with you, and they say to you, listen, you're a, you're a, you're a 16-year-old uh, person, a teenager, act like one, you know, stop acting like an eight-year-old. If, if, uh, if they say that, you know that they're not very happy with you. You need to be who you are, act like who you're supposed to be. And that's the same with being in Christ. You are a child of God, act like one. And that acting like one has to do with death and resurrection. The old me dies, the new me becomes alive. This is what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Baptism says we share in Christ. He died, we died. He rose, we rose. When he died, the old me died. When he rose, the new me rose with him. And because I'm alive in Christ, I must walk as one who is alive in Christ. I must walk in newness of life. Now, what does that look like? It's the two parts, dying and living, and that's what we see in 89 and 90 here. The dying, the dying isn't always easy, is it? Because being slum dwellers and outlaws and rebels is all we know. And old habits die hard. There I am, the, the little slum kid. I've never been in a fancy palace. There's a big meal, and I stick my finger in my nose, and I stick it in the pan, and I grab some food, because that's what I used to do. And the king says, well, my child, that's, that's not what we do anymore. You're a prince now. You're a princess. You've got to act different. You've got to be who you are. Stop acting like a slum dweller. That's the old life you used to have. You need to learn to live like royalty. Now, the slum dweller, of course, delights in, 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 in this uh, allegory here, the, the wicked outlaw slum. They delight to, in perverse and wicked actions. They think they're funny. They despise everything having to do with the kingdom. And the king says to his child, my child, that's not who you are. You are a royal child, and you need to live like one. 
So when we, when we sin, brothers and sisters, when we kind of show in our lives, our thinking, our speaking, our acting, the way we used to be, God doesn't come down on us like a ton of bricks in anger and judgment and wrath and condemnation to punish us. He can't. He can't do that because the sin's forgiven. Jesus took it all. There's no condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. God does not punish us for our sins. What he will do is discipline us as a loving father. He says, my child, that's not who you are. Here, take this. I'm going to teach you. And sometimes he teaches us with some pain. But I'm going to teach you that that's not the way you ought to be thinking, speaking, acting, or living. Now, the wrong way to deal with this old nature is to stuff it into a box deep down in a dark corner of our heart, paste a veneer of goodness over the top, but inside we keep on being who we were. And a lot of religion is like that. A lot of Christianity, which calls itself Christianity, is like that, that that outwardly we start acting according to all the rules, and when that old nature kind of makes itself known, we're, we're kind of embarrassed because we were trying so hard to hide it. And so we resolve to be more careful in the future. When we sin, we'll hide it better and we'll not let people see our old nature in action. We keep it for that, those secret parts of our hearts and lives. And so that's what the Bible would call ungodly grief. You notice here in 89... That dying of the old nature has to do with grieving with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God. That's what we, we sang about in Psalm 51, didn't we? Where, where, where David says, look, I've, I've sexually assaulted a woman, a wife of somebody. Then I killed her husband on top of that, which are horrible sins against them. But he says, you know, the worst of it all is I've sinned against you, God, against you. I've offended you with my sin." I've brought shame on your holy name. I'm your child, and this, what I've done, has offended your holiness. And so the dying of the old nature has to do with grieving in a godly way. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There are two types of grief for sin. There's a godly one. There's a worldly one. The worldly grief for sin is this. Oh, I'm sorry if I get caught. I'm sorry if I get exposed. I'm sorry if I experience unpleasant consequences for my sin. If only I could have gotten away with it. And brothers and sisters, how many there are who call themselves Christians who do not know the dying of the old nature? They are content with keeping up appearances, but inside their hearts, those same wicked thoughts and desires and acts continue to percolate. Their hearts know the same passions of the flesh. There are no delights in holy things, but the passions of the flesh are delightful and to be desired. And their greatest fear is not to offend God, but their greatest fear is that their fake Christianity would be exposed. Now, if someone is foolish enough to live in that way, then looking back at question answer 88, we know that that is not true repentance, is it? It's not true conversion. 
It is the dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new. And someone who lives legalistically and covering up their sin and secretly indulging in it and holding on to it, there's no true conversion there. And if there's no true conversion, then we go back to 87. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. You know, we often look at things externally. If someone isn't evidently and obviously going around murdering and stealing and robbing and slandering and doing things like that, we think they're fine. But the Bible says it begins in the heart. And I have to be putting to death my old nature beginning in the deepest recesses of my heart. I need to be mortifying, killing it every day. And that's hard work, but it's necessary work. And so the dying of the old nature, then question answer 90, the living, the coming to life of the new. If we are alive, truly alive in Christ, if he dwells in our hearts, if his spirit is working in us renewal according to his image, then we simply cannot find joy anymore in the things of the flesh, in the things that belong to being dead in sin, in the things that have to do with our old life. We, we don't like them anymore. This is important, brothers and sisters, very important, because so often as Christians, we fight against sins, and we fight against doing them. Oh, no, I did it again. Lord, help me not to do it. Oh, I did it three times this week. Lord, help me to do it only two times next week. Brothers and sisters, that's the wrong way of fighting sin. What we need to be doing is saying, God, why do I want this? Can you tell me, God, why I desire this sin? Because I don't want to desire it. Could you please take my heart and change it? Because what's the use of doing it two times instead of three or one time instead of two? I don't want to sin. I hate sin. I love Christ. So change my heart. Kill my old nature, God, and bring to life a new nature which has heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. What we want, first of all, brothers and sisters, is changed affections, changed desires, changed priorities. We want God to change the things which we delight in. And from that flows everything else. Because when Christ is in us, when his spirit renews us, we love God, we love Christ, we love holiness, we love God's will. Our desires have changed and sin loses its attraction. It really does. It loses its attraction. Because we want to be like him. We want to be like Jesus. We want to learn the ropes of being a royal child of God and we want to do that with all our heart. We want to throw ourselves into this project. We want to be truly royal. We want to be who we are. And our greatest longing and our greatest desire is to, to be pleasing to him and to do what is pleasing to him. That's what Scripture says, or that's what Scripture means when it says in Romans 6, 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then we get to 91, the last question and answer here. How do we know? How do we know what pleases him? How do we know what he wants us to do to show that we love him? Well, he wants us to do good works. And we confess that in 86, question answer 86, to show thanks to him, to show ourselves that, hey, I am different. God has changed my life. And to show our neighbors the same thing, that, hey, I'm different. God has changed my life. 
But how do we know what a good work looks like? And the definition or the parameters are given here in question answer 91. There are three things that are necessary, true faith, accordance with the law of God, and to his glory. So let's look at each one of those in turn. Out of true faith. He has adopted us. He's brought us into his family. And I embrace that. I I, I want that. I, I believe his word. I believe his promises. I trust his word that I am no longer a condemned outlaw, no longer a person dead in sin, but I am a beloved child. That's what God tells me, and I believe it. And I want to do what pleases him from the heart, not just on the outside, but from the heart. Whatever does not proceed from faith, says the scripture, is sin. And so just to walk like an automaton through life and just kind of outwardly do the things which we think we ought to do is not true faith and it certainly isn't good works. It has to be a deep and real desire to worship God and to love God and to please God. And it has to be not what we think, but it has to be in accordance with the law of God. That means that I will study his law and I will know it. I will study as a royal child of God. I will study the constitution of the kingdom because it expresses the will of my king and my father whom I love and who loves me. And I will study it day and night and I will be like that tree which is planted by the waters, which is green in season and out of season, which is always bearing fruit. And I will take that law and I will store it up in my heart so that I might not sin against him. You see, a true Christian lives by faith in accordance with the law of God not by my own ideas, not by my own opinions, as the Catechism puts it. You know, there's so many who call themselves Christians, and the Scripture says, listen, this is what you need to be doing to worship God. And there are so many who claim to believe in Christ who say, well, that's not the way I want to live. That's not the way I want to worship. That's not the way I want to do marriage or sexuality or work or pleasure or whatever. I'm going to worship God in my own way. The way you guys believe, according to the scriptures, that's not who God is for me. And that is not true faith, and nor are those really good works if they're not done in accordance with the law of God. I used to live like that when I was a lawbreaker. But he has changed me. So I'm not going to make up my own rules to live by, but I will live according to his law. He helps me to live as a law keeper, not a law breaker. So out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, then finally to his glory. There is something more important than my salvation, and that is the glory of God. I don't walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand for me to walk in so I can save myself or so I can show everybody that I'm a good person. But I do good works because I love him and it is an act of worship. I must live for his glory. And we we see that in in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I'll just read with you here. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's living a life of good works, a living sacrifice of thankfulness which discerns the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That means that we have to be in the Word because we can't just sit there and pluck that out of the air, can we? If we want to know the will of God, if we want to know the law of God, we need to know it. We need to study it. We need to read it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to store it up in our minds and our hearts so that we can live according to his will. And so do you see there in question answer 91, the three parts of the catechism? There's true faith, that's the creed. There's the law of God, that's the law, which we're about to embark on in the next weeks of catechism preaching. And then there's to his glory, that's worship, which is the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, glorified, exalted be your name. So those are the three sections of the catechism, faith and the law and prayerful worship, which seeks the glory of God. That's the shape of the Christian life. That's the shape of living in a life of good works. We don't worship God on our own terms, but we want to be what he has made us to be. We want to live as royal children. And that means living in faith, obedience, and prayer. Now, we're going to sing Psalm 143 in a moment. And if you look at it in your psalm book, you see that Psalm 143 begins in stanzas 1 and 2 and 3, which we're not singing, with describing the first part of Ephesians 2, the, the darkness and the, the death and the despair. It's, it's, a, it's a bad situation. And then we're going to start singing at stanza 4. There is a way out, and the way out is to cry out to God for his grace, to seek God, to seek his face, and to experience his love and his grace and his mercy as he turns his face towards me, an unworthy sinner. Because when God smiles upon me in Christ, that changes my life and that changes everything. And then look at stanza five. Look at stanza five. I trust in you for my support. To you I offer all my heart. That's faith. And then look at stanza six. Teach me your will. You are my God. Let your good spirit, O oh my Savior, lead me along a level road. That is spirit-led obedience to the law. So we have spirit-worked faith there in stanza five, which we're about to sing. We have spirit-led obedience in stanza six. And now look at stanza seven. Why? Why is the psalmist asking this? For your name's sake. That's why everything is asked of God. That's why we do everything. For your name's sake, for the sake of your glory. That is spirit-filled worship. And that's the meaning and the purpose of my existence. The glory of his name. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I live to worship. I believe to worship. I obey to worship. I pray to worship. That's what it's all about. That's what being made alive in Christ looks like. A fruitful, productive life of good works in faith, obedience, and prayer, which brings all the glory to God. Amen.